Hey, I'm Zach. Thanks so much for checking out this week's message. I hope that it encourages you. I hope it challenges you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's Word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. And if you don't, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our community here at Restore, whether that's coming to one of our Sunday gatherings or coming to one of our Restore groups. Either way, we would love to see you. You can get more information about that on our website at RestoreAustin.org. And I hope you enjoyed this week's video. So it is the last week of our Upside Down Kingdom series. So for about the last 10 weeks, actually, we've been in this series called Upside Down Kingdom. Some of you have been here for some of it. Some of you, this is your first time, so I'm gonna tell you kind of what we've been talking about. We've been looking at the parables, really stories that Jesus told about his kingdom and how we call it Upside Down Kingdom because a lot of the times these stories are really different from our kingdom here on earth. And so we look at how God says that really we should live and the way our lives should be impacted and how his kingdom is supposed to look. That's the upside down kingdom. So I hope you've enjoyed looking at these stories from Jesus. And the truth is Jesus was a masterful storyteller, able to make deep and complicated truths both, both simple and compelling. And this story, I think, might be his very best. In fact, if you talk to literary scholars, both Christian and secular, they would say this is one of the greatest stories ever told. It's the story of the prodigal son. And it's a story of two sons, an older brother and a younger brother, who probably never got dedicated as children. That's why this is what happened to them. No, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. That's just a joke. Um, In all seriousness, it's about these two sons who chase after life and, and fulfillment and satisfaction in very different ways. And we kind of see, do one of these roads lead to life and the other one doesn't? How does that all work? So it's a story with three main characters. We have the father, who represents God. We have the younger son, who represents one part of humanity. And we have the older son, who kind of represents the other part of humanity. And here's the simple truth. You have been, or currently are, one of these two sons. So as we talk about this this morning, you really only have one job for the next few minutes. I want you to figure out which one you are. So as you're listening to the story, as you're hearing the description of these two brothers, think about which one of these do I most identify with, okay? And we're gonna come back to that at the very end. The story is found in Luke 15, starting in verse 11. The verses will be on the screen behind me. If you've got a Bible, Luke 15, verse 11, or you can look at it on your phone. Verse 11 says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. So let me pause there and say, this is a story about two sons told in two parts, okay? Two sons, two parts. Part one, act one, is about the younger son. Act two is about the older. And so we're about to see the beginning here of act one. Verse 12, the younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate, So he divided his property between them. This seems like an innocuous request to us, but in fact, this was an incredibly disgraceful and disrespectful thing that the younger son does to his father. You see, in the first century world, the father's estate would have been divided up between his sons after he passed away. It was very important. It was divided up after he passed away. The older son 
would receive a double share and all the other sons received a single share. So this man, it says that he had two sons and that meant that in this home, the younger son was entitled to one third of the estate and the older son to two thirds. But again, that was only true after the father has died. But the younger son is asking for his inheritance now. I, I, I cannot stress how disrespectful this would have been in the first century. In no uncertain terms, this younger son is looking at his father and saying, I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying. I wish you were dead. I don't care about you. I don't care about this family. I want my money and I want to go. I want what's mine. I know it doesn't, it's not supposed to come to me until after you're dead, but I might as well. I wish you were so that I could just get it. Just give it to me now so I can go. He wants his father's things, not his father. Okay, remember that because we're going to come back to that in a second. He wants his father's things, but not his father. As outrageous as the younger son's request is, the reaction of the father is actually just as shocking. He, he doesn't get angry. He doesn't yell or scream. It would have been perfectly valid and even legal and even appropriate for this dad to kick the younger son out of the home for just making a request like this. He says, you know this doesn't happen until after I pass away. Just leave. You're not getting any money. You're out. But he doesn't. He simply, quote, divided his property between them. The word translated here, property, is the Greek word bios, which you might uh, know that leads us to words like biology or biography, bio meaning life, okay? Biography, life story, biology, study of life. So the property that he divides between them is literally his life. The father divides up his life for his younger son, unless you think I'm just kind of being dramatic, let me tell you why he truly is dividing up his life. You see, the wealth of the father would have been primarily in real estate. He was a property owner. He was a land owner. And most likely, that land would have been passed down from generation to generation to generation in order to monetize one-third of his wealth to give to the younger son, he would have had to sell this, some of this land. Literally breaking up, dividing up his very life to grant this younger son's shameful and disgraceful request. So the younger son is not only telling the father he wishes him dead, he's asking him to tear his life apart to make it happen. And the father does it. He does it because he loves his little boy. A love that has been thrown back in his face by the younger son as he takes his father's money and leaves. So where does he go? Verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Wow, that didn't take long, did it? One verse, and everything the younger son so disrespectfully stole from his father is gone. And things are about to get from bad, go from bad to worse. Verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So this famine hits, and the younger son has squandered all of his wealth. He can't support himself. And things get really bad really fast. Think about it like this. This is his fall from grace. He loses all his money. He can't eat because of the famine. He has to go to a foreigner in a foreign country to ask for a job. 
a non-Jewish person. He has to, he's a Jewish person. Ask a non-Jewish person for a job. That was shameful enough. Did you hear the job that he got? The job he got is feeding pigs. Okay, if, if you know anything about Jewish people and pigs, they don't exactly mix well together, okay? The Old Testament sp- specifically prohibited Jewish people from eating them, touching them after they die, and even just generally interacting with them in a lot of ways. His job pays so poorly. His pig-feeding job from this pagan guy feeds so, uh, pays so poorly that he wished he could eat the slop that he was feeding to the pigs. Think about the fall that this young man has had, living in his father's house, tons of wealth. He disgracefully asks for it all, steals it, and now this is where he is. Things are desperate, and he is desperate. So he decides to do something desperate about it. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And I am here starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This is a desperate plea from the younger son. You see, there's a difference between servants and hired servants that are identified here. Servants, they live on the landowner's property. They weren't a full part of the family, but they were kind of, they got to live there. They got a roof over their heads. They got money. They got food to eat, all of that kind of stuff. A hired servant lived off the property. He lived in town somewhere, usually in a big group housing with a bunch of other hired servants or day laborers. And they just came in to do stuff. So it was he said, I, I can't even make it as a servant. I, I doubt my father will even let me on his land, much less live there. So I'm gonna just try to be a, a hired servant where I can come in occasionally and work. But he knows that even hired servants at his father's house have it better than he has it now. So he gets up and he's determined to go back to his father, but as a hired servant now, not as a son. So he comes up with this, this plan and he rehearses an apology the whole way back to his father's house. Right? He's, he's thinking through it, he's thinking, Okay, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Okay, that, that's the line. I'm gonna go with it. God, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Please, Dad, please. Now, if you're the dad, you don't know your son is on his way home. You don't know what he's done with your wealth. The last thing you remember is him telling you, I wish you were dead and stealing a third of your money. If that had happened, if you were this kid's dad, what would you do? when he waltzes back up to your house after years of being gone, having stolen a bunch of your money and told you he wished you were dead. Put yourself in his shoes. After all of that, what would this son have to do to get back in your good graces? We asked the same question to a few people out here on South Congress. Look at what they had to say. All right, let's say you had a son. And he came to you and he told you that he wished you were dead, he stole half of your money, and then he ran away from home. If he came back, what would he have to do to get back in your good graces? Um, it would be, he would have to definitely show a, a change of character. And um, at that point, you know, if I really felt like he changed, I wouldn't give up on my son. So, yeah. All right, if your son, assuming you had a son, if your son told you that he wished you were dead, took half of your money, and then ran away. If he came home, what would he have to do to get back into your good graces? It's a good question. I don't have a son. He'd have to pay me back. 
pay me back for sure. Now, let's say you had a son and he came to you and he told you he wished you were dead. He took half of your money and he left home and he ran away. He comes back one day. What would he have to do to get back in your good graces? I mean, authentic apology, I think, would be the starting point. It's that, that's something you'd have to feel out there. I don't know if I would have a, uh, if I could describe to you a, a hard line that he would be forgiven at, but I think it's usually pretty easy to tell him people when they're, when they're truly apologetic. If your son told you that he wished you were dead, took half your money, and then ran away, if he came home, what would he have to do to get back in your good grace? You'd have to pay, repay me the money he took. Probably. Anything else? Um, uh, yeah, no, mainly the money, and he'd just have to prove to me that he's changed as a person. All right, let's say you had a son, and he came to you and he told you that he wished you were dead, he stole half your money, and he ran away from home. If he came back, what would he have to do to get back in your good graces? Oh, man. Um, well, jokingly, I'd say, oh, where's my money? But no, you know, uh, Again, that's one of those situations you really can't call that until it actually happens. But I have, maybe not sons, but like really close friends who have wronged me and taken advantage of my kindness. And I've told them I don't ever want to see you again. And I've seen them like before. I was like, no, I told you I don't want to see you again and have walked off. Yeah. So, I mean, not like a son thing, but I have been in that situation where you're just like, you had your chance, man, and you messed it up. You had your chance, man. You messed it up. I think those are all pretty reasonable answers, honestly. In our culture, in our kingdom, right, here on earth, it'd be perfectly acceptable to withhold forgiveness until we're sure that our son is really sorry for what he's done or, or until he paid us back or even just disowned him completely. Just said, you had your chance, man, it's over. But like we've said this entire series, our kingdom and God's kingdom are not the same. They don't operate the same way. Look at how this father reacts when he sees his son come over that hill and he sees him for the first time in years. Verse 20 records the scene. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. This, this is an incredible scene for so many reasons. First, the father saw him while he was still a long way off. Think about it. A wealthy landowner like this would be busy. They'd be doing a lot of different things. He probably had vineyards. He probably ran cattle or sheep or all these different things. He was, he was busy running the servants, running the household. And yet, in order for this father to see his son coming over the hill, it doesn't say that the son got home, told the servant, the servant went and got the dad, the dad came out. The dad was waiting for the son. I bet he had a little point every day where he just went out and he stood and he just looked over that hill where he saw his son disappear a few years ago and he just waited for him to come back. That's the first thing, the dad was waiting for the son. And second thing, it says he ran to him, okay? High class men in this society do not run, right? They, like ever. It was shameful for them to run. They wore these huge robes. They wore heavy jewelry that honestly prevented them from running at all, okay? It wasn't even like if they wanted to run, they couldn't because of the robes and the jewelry. So that means this father, not only would he have to, he would have to wait and watch for his son to come back over the hill. When he sees him, that means he's taking off all of his jewelry, he's picking up his robes, you know, to his knees, and he's sprinting after his son. Think about that scene. 
Think about the desperate love for a son that this father must feel when he sees him. And when he gets to his son, he throws his arms around him and starts kissing that same young man that just years before had told him, I don't want you, I don't love you, I wish you were dead, I want your money, and I want to go. He waits for him, he sees him, he runs to him, and he kisses him. Incredible, incredible scene. I can imagine the younger son is a little taken aback, right? He's, he's been feeding pigs and then he's been rehearsing this great apology and he's walking home, I'm sure with trepidation as he's about to meet his father, but he sees now this man that he's known to come and respect, take his jewelry off, pick his robes up, sprint toward him, hug him and kiss him. And, but, but he remembers that apology and he starts to stumble through it. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost and now he is found. So they began to celebrate. Did you notice what happened when the son started apologizing? He got halfway into his little rehearsed apology and the father just interrupts him. He just said, don't even bother. Just, just go get the fatted calf. Let's throw a party. You're home. I missed you. I love you. The father is saying, I'm not gonna wait until you pay off your debt. I'm not gonna wait until you can try to earn your way back into this family. I'm not even going to let you finish your one sentence rehearsed apology. I'm simply gonna take you back. No strings attached because you're my son. He doesn't even let him finish his apology before he starts making plans for this huge party. And when I say huge party, I really mean it, okay? A fattened calf was something that was only used at the grandest of events. You have to realize that in the first century, most, like 99% of meals didn't even include meat. Meat was a delicacy, and the fatted calf was the delicacy of all delicacies. And so usually a fatted calf would be killed like two or three times in a generation. These were decade, like, defining parties that they would throw with a fatted calf. And so he kills the fatted calf, and that means probably with this kind of party, the whole village is invited. He puts the family ring and the family robes on the sun, saying, I don't care what you've done. This is a symbol that you are back in our family, complete restoration. And the younger son decided to come home after dishonoring his father, squandering his wealth, and shaming his entire family, and he expects to be met with judgment. But there is only grace. He anticipates punishment, but his father throws him a party. He asks to be a hired servant, but his father makes him a son. And with that, act one is complete. What a story. Incredible story. And I tell you that a lot of times when I've heard this preached, that's kind of where it ends, Right? His son, he ran off, he disgraced his father, he comes back, the dad loves him, hugs him, they throw this huge party, it's a beautiful scene, it's a great way to end the story. But if we stop there, we're actually missing half the point. Act one ends in a massive celebration, but we notice at the beginning of act two that not everyone is at the party. Verse 26, excuse me, verse 25. 
Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, is, he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father went out and pleaded with him. So now it's the older son's turn to disgrace the father. He refuses to go into what is probably the largest and most public gathering party that this dad has ever thrown. The whole village is there. And yet the son is like, the older son's like, I'm, I'm not going in. He actually, it says he stays outside the door, publicly stating his disagreement with his father to every villager that walks in that party. Everyone that comes in, I'm sure they're saying, hey man, are you going in? Your, your younger brother's home or we're partying. He's like, I'm not doing it. I don't know why my dad's doing this. It's stupid. It's ridiculous. I, I don't agree with it. Every single person that walked by would have known that that older son was saying, I'm not on board with what my dad is doing. This shameful act causes the father to have to leave his party and go outside. This would have been incredibly demeaning for the father, a landowner, a wealthy guy who was supposed to be hosting this huge party. He had hospitality duties that he needed to be fulfilling inside of this grand event, but he has to go out and deal with this belligerent, selfish older brother outside the door. Why is the older son so mad? Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this young son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? The older son bringing up the fattened calf is really only a symbol of what the father has actually done. Listen to this. You see, by bringing the younger son back in the family, he made him a one-third heir again. Okay, he cut the inheritance of the older son in order to bring the younger son back in. The older brother is saying, I have worked myself ragged for you. I have never disobeyed you. I have earned everything I have ever worked for. I've always been here, and yet he ran away. But when he comes back, you throw him a party and you make him an heir again? Are you kidding me? Where is the justice in that, Dad? At this point, the older brother has insulted his father by not going to the party. He's questioned his authority in front of the entire village. The father has every right to disown this kid and be like, get out. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Same thing as when the younger son did it. He just says, I don't even want you in my household anymore. How could you speak to me like this? Your younger son is home. Of course we're gonna throw a party for him. Why would you act like this? Just leave. He has every right to do that. But he doesn't. In fact, he responds with the same graciousness that he offers the younger son when he stumbled home just a few minutes earlier. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
He could have turned him away, but instead he pleads for him to enter back into the celebration. He graciously challenges this kid to to swallow his pride and to come into the party. It's both a dramatic and touching turn in act two. So how does it end? Oh, that's it. (laughs) Verse 32 is the last verse of this story. I'm sure that the listeners, just like you, are on the edge of their seats waiting to see what this older son does, but that's it. There's no more. That's the end of the story. The last scene we have is this father urgently and graciously pleading with his older son, stop being so prideful and just come in to the party. Just participate in our family's love and bonding. Participate in this celebration that the whole village is here for. The last scene we have is the father pleading that with the older son and the older son saying, no thanks. Why would Jesus stop here? Why wouldn't he finish the story? I think it's because the live audience for this story is actually the Pharisees. If you know much about the Bible or about Pharisees, you know that they're the religious leaders of the time. They are the older brothers of the time, leading self-righteous lives of entitlement, believing that God owes them something for their pursuit of morality. And just like the older brother, they are left with a decision, trust in their pride or lay it down and trust the father. If you think about it, it's the same decision that the younger brother had to make too. Would he trust in himself and keep trying to fix everything on his own or would he lay down his pride and go back to his dad? So here's where the question I asked you at the very beginning becomes so important. Which brother are you? Because if you think about it, Jesus uses these two brothers as the two basic ways that people try to find fulfillment in this life. The way of self-discovery as the younger brother and the way of morality. That is the older brother. The younger brother represents self-discovery. He, he bucks the traditions and the morals of his time to, to forge his own path. He doesn't care about the social norms he is breaking. He believes that those things actually hold society back. He thinks that each person should be free to do their own thing, make their own decision, go find themselves. His life quickly gets out of control, though, as he runs down this path of self-discovery. He knows that this journey he's on will inevitably end in self-destruction. And he has a decision to make. So is that you? Are you chasing your personal freedom? Are you trying to to find yourself because you think that's how you'll ultimately find fulfillment fulfillment and happiness? Do you think there's life in self-discovery? Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're more like the older brother. The older brother represents morality or moral conformity. He follows every rule to the letter and believes that that entitles him to the life that he wants. He thinks he's owed. He also judges others like the younger brother who don't have the same approach to morality that he does. The two lost sons represent every single one of us at one time or another. Even though one may look bad, the younger son and the other one may look good, the older son in the eyes of our world, in our kingdom, it seems like one of these kids is bad, one of these kids is good. In reality, both are alienated from the father. 
and both need an invitation from him to come into the party. The younger son's separation from the father is easy to identify. He publicly shames him and he leaves. The older sons, though, it's, it's harder to see. Remember what he said. He doesn't want to go into the party because he, quote, never disobeyed his father. This young man isn't missing out. This older brother, he's not missing out on the father's party in spite of his goodness. He's missing out because of it. Is this you? Are you following all the rules and doing what you're supposed to do because you think that somehow that'll make God and the people around you owe you something at the end of all of this? You think there's life and fulfillment and morality? I love the way Tim Keller sums up this particular way of thinking. He says, if, like the older brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration, but he is not your savior. You are serving as your own savior. If you're sitting here this morning and you think that life and fulfillment are found either in self-discovery or morality, I love you and I understand, but you're wrong. You're just wrong. I've been there before I've tried to find it in those places and I can tell you that it simply is not there. Because true, real, abundant, and everlasting life is only found in Christ. That's it. John 10.10 says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So what's that life that Jesus is talking about? It's him. He is the life. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It doesn't get any clearer than that, my friends. He is it. He came so that we might have life and life abundantly. Where's that life? It's him. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Jesus' message in this story is clear, true, is clear too. We are the brothers. God is the father. And the party is abundant life both now and eternally. We have a choice, just like the brothers. Trust in ourselves, the way of self-discovery, the way of morality, or trust in God. Be our own saviors, or let Jesus be our savior. Most of us have probably heard this story and are probably familiar, we've heard that term prodigal before. But have you ever wondered what it actually means? I wanna close with this. Prodigal is an adjective that means recklessly extravagant or having spent everything. And let me tell you that that younger son might have been recklessly extravagant, but he was nothing compared to God. We have a prodigal God, my friends. He has spent everything on us. He left heaven, came to earth in the form of Jesus lived the perfect life that we could never live, died the death that we deserved on the cross, and then three days later overcame death, rose again to life. And he offers us that same life. And now, today, he recklessly and extravagantly lavishes his love and grace on us. He freely gives us this life. 
matter who you are or what you've done, I'm here to tell you that you have a prodigal father who has recklessly and extravagantly spent everything on you because that's how much he loves you. It doesn't matter if you're standing outside the party saying this is stupid and I hate you or you're saying I wish you were dead, give me my money, I want to go. It doesn't matter how many times you've wanted his things and not him. He looks at you and he says, you are my son or my daughter and I love you. No matter who you are, what you've done, that's for you. So if you're trusting in yourself and not in this prodigal God, my hope for you this morning is that today is the last day that's true of you. I don't want that to be true of you. There's no life in it. Life is only found in Christ and he freely gives it to you. So I'm about to pray and then we're going to have a time of of dedicating our kids to God and it's going to be this beautiful, amazing, slightly messy, chaotic, fun time together. But after this is all over, if you want to come talk to me about this prodigal God, if you want to learn more about who he is and how much he loves you, I would love to talk to you about that. So I'll be in the lobby hanging out afterwards. Please come find me if that's you. So let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for just who you are. Thank you that you are a prodigal God who recklessly and extravagantly gave everything for us. God, thank you for the way that you love us. I pray that if anybody in this room, Christians, not Christians alike, if we're chasing something other than you, morality, self-discovery, whatever it is, God, I pray that we would just humbly realize that there's no life in that. That life only comes through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.